Hey, it's Shane here. Throughout the majority of my career, I spent thousands of hours on my technique to try to be as close to perfect as I could be. But the one thing I didn't work on was my mental skills. On the exact mindset I needed every ball to be able to access all of my technical skills that I worked so hard to develop. Well, I've recently released my book, Winning the Inner Battle, which has all of the information that you will ever need to deeply understand how you can create the correct mindset for you so that you can bring the best version of yourself every time you step out into the middle. Go to shamewatson.au to purchase a copy of Winning the Inner Battle now. It is available in paperback, ebook, or audiobook versions. Well, it's now time for your episode of Lessons Learned with the Greats. Enjoy. The big thing that I, I became more aware of in time was just trying to visualize having success. So, you know, when you're younger, you sort of go out there hoping to, to make runs. And then over time, once you know your game really well, you start to visualize. And for me, a big part of it was I'd walk out the bat, you know, early in the day and the light was obviously so different to what it is later in the day. And, and I'd sort of visualise looking up at the scoreboard and seeing having 60 or 70 or 80 runs next to my name and knowing that the light would be different later in the day when I was on those runs and, and try and visualise that, knowing I'd been there before. And then when you sort of have been through it before, you know what you have to do to get there. And so in a way, it was probably like um, mapping out a path to try and get to your end destination in a way in your own mind. Hello everyone and welcome to Lessons Learned with the Greats. I'm Shane Watson and today we're joined by a guy who never had it easy and had to fight incredibly hard for everything that he achieved. He scored 10 test hundreds in his 56 test matches and ended up having to put up with opening the batting with me for 15 test matches. And personally, this partnership was truly one of the highlights of my test career. Simon Kadich, thank you so much for being on my show. My pleasure, Watto. I just want to say quickly how much I love batting with Cato for um, for a few reasons. The first reason was his true understanding of his game, the bowlers he was facing and the strengths and his strengths and weaknesses to combat what was coming down at him. The second reason was just how incredibly tough he was. Cato never took a backward step, no matter who was bowling at him and how fast they were bowling. And thirdly, I always knew that during a test match and us being in survival mode, Cato always had my back when I needed some extra support and ammo out in the middle when things started to get a little hot in the kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) Cato came along at a time in Australian cricket when opportunities in the top order of the batting lineup were so hard to come by. But once he got his opportunity to open the batting in 2008, after scoring a record-breaking 1,506 runs in 11 games in a domestic Sheffield Shield competition, Cato seriously made the most of his second coming. There are a number of your very special innings that I think about during um, your test career, but one that really stands out to me that I watched from the sidelines was your 122 uh, in the first Ashes test at Savaya Gardens in 2009. England had a seriously good bowling lineup, and to start an Ashes series like that, is what all Aussie batsmen dream of. What do you remember about that time and that innings in 2009? Well, let me just firstly say, Watto, that you know one of my great joys as an opening batsman was was getting to have that partnership with you. And that was probably what made the decision when I got sacked in, I think it was 2010, all the more disappointing was because it wasn't just about um, the fact that I knew I was probably not going to play test cricket again, but it was also the fact that it had broken up 
our partnership, which I felt uh, had been really special and had been one of the strengths of the team. To, so to hear the uh, chairman of selectors at the time say that they wanted to bed down the opening partnership for 2013 <laughs> was really disappointing to hear that when it was probably one of the strengths of our side at the moment at, mm. at that point in time. And I think historically, I've been told this since, I didn't realise at the time, but um, from a statistical point of view, I think we ranked third in terms of the highest averages as an opening pair in Australian mm. cricket history behind, I think, some of the greats in, obviously, uh, Bob Simpson and, and Bill Laurie and then Matthew Hayden and Justin Langer. So I think we'd been doing a reasonable job. So it was disappointing. But look, going back to 2009, I think the big thing for me was that, you know, I probably had some demons to exercise from 2005. Um, mm. And I guess, you know, that, that to me, they say about your cricket or any, any sport in particular that you, you learn your greatest from your darkest times. And that pr- probably throughout my career was the worst time in my career where, you know, I had an opportunity to help us, um, you know, try and be successful in that 2005 Ashes series and miss the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And and then found my way out of the team um, because I hadn't performed well enough, which was perfectly fine. But then to get back in and to be playing as well as I was in 2009 and to go out there and start the way um, that I did and also the way the team did mm-hmm. um, was something that was really satisfying because obviously I guess the end result wasn't great because when you score 100 to set up a first innings of a test – you, you hope that you can help win the test match from there. And, and we certainly had a massive platform. We just couldn't quite finish the test off. And unfortunately, when you look back on that 2009 series, that first test, the one that got away at Cardiff, uh, was the one that cost us winning that series in 2009. And unfortunately, you know, we didn't quite get the right result um, from that, that test match. Yeah, it was shattering, shattering to watch. Jimmy Anderson, Monty Panesar, gosh. What a genius. He got through that time. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just goes to show it's never over. And, and to England's credit, they hung in there and we couldn't quite finish the job off. And, and I think that we took that into the second test at Lords mm. and that flatness, it started on day one. We had a poor day one. England got runs on the board and then the rest is history. They, they managed to get on a roll and, and win that test and um, unfortunately we couldn't come back. You achieved so much on the cricket field. So looking back now, is there one highlight of your career that really stands out to you? Yeah, look, there's so many things uh, when you look back on a career that I think nearly went for about 20 years professionally. So Mm. I've got many, many great memories. But I think from a personal point of view, it has to be uh, being presented my baggy green by Mm. an icon of the game, Richie Benno. And and I think what was significant was at the time, we probably didn't realise that Steve Waugh had just started a, a magnificent tradition I think it was only a couple of years earlier that he'd, he'd brought that tradition in uh, to Australian cricket. I think Adam Gilchrist might have been the first one with Bill Brown presenting it to him at the Gabba. And, and that's probably the hallmark of Tugger's captaincy was um, having these little traditions and things that made it even more special for the players. So for me to have mine presented by a legend, a former Australian captain and someone who I idolised, obviously, given his commentary work and, and also as a player, and learning the history of the game was something very special. And, and what made it even more special was the fact that, you know, he said these words, he said, there are many more important things in life than a baggy green cap, but to an Australian cricketer, it is the ultimate achievement. Every time you wear it, wear it with pride and enjoy yourself. And, and I think that's what really stood out for me in the second part of my test career is I really um, made sure I listened to those words and I did enjoy that second coming. And, um, you know, I've been forever grateful that, you know, Tugger set that tradition up and then Richie Benno was good enough and kind enough to uh, offer his time 
to do it obviously in front of the group but also in front of my family and friends which as you know um, it's such a proud moment because you think back you have all these flashbacks of what it was like when you were a kid dreaming that you would one day get this opportunity and then when it presents you just can't believe that it's actually come true because you know it took so long to do it and you think about all those little things that the part of the journey that that you have to to get there and um yeah just made it so much more special so that was probably the personal highlight and then from a team point of view you know to have played in such a strong year of Australian cricket is something I look back on now and I probably didn't really truly appreciate it at the time you just sort of take it for granted because that's the time you're playing in but looking back now to have won in India in 2004 uh, in that test series um, you know, I think it'd been the first time for about 38 years that an Australian team had won there and no one's won there since from an Australian point of view. Uh, we came close in 2017 and, and obviously it was a magnificent series. But, yeah, 2004 for me from a team point of view stands out and um, it was a very fond memory. Yeah, that 2004 series, I was on the, on, in the squad for that and that was some of the most fascinating test cricket that I've ever watched. It was, it was extraordinary. Um, and for the Aussie team to be able to go over there and just – play as well as they did and you being you know, a, a huge part of that as well the runs that you scored um in the in the middle order was was it, again it was just fascinating to watch really was yeah, I, th- I think from memory a few things went our way we got off to a good start at winning in Bangalore but then the second test in Chennai we we had our backs against the wall going into the last day we only had I think 220 or 30 to defend and Saywag had come out blazing on the night of day four and he wanted those runs in a hurry but then little did we realise the Chennai forecast was for monsoonal light rain and it came and uh, we ended up getting the draw. And when you look back on it now, it was almost like it was meant to be because, mm. um, you know, to have that happen when we're in such a, 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 you know, a weak position in the test match, given that India, you know, didn't have to knock off that many runs on the last day on what was still a pretty good wicket. Um, we, were, we were fortunate in a way, but we were still good enough to win that next test in Nagpur and the rest is history. Yeah, and what you said about there is the the great players and the great team that the Aussie team was in that 2004 series alone. It's it's too hard to get your head around the the calibre of players who was playing in that team. Obviously, Ricky Ponting didn't play um, in that series. He'd broken his um, thumb. But like I remember the, the bowling attack. There's only There's only really four bowlers. But these guys were at the absolute best. Glenn McGrath, Jason Gillespie, Michael Kasperwitz with Brett Lee on the sidelines and Warney. Like that was some of the most fascinating <laughs> bowling as a starting point to ever watch, let alone the batting to be able to bat so well, you know, through the whole group in those conditions. Well, both teams were very, very strong. India were, mm. you know, blessed with the batting lineup, a top six that was probably the envy of nearly every team in, in international cricket. And, you know, they just kept coming. It was, you know, it started with Saywag and then there's obviously Dravid the wall and then there's the great Sachin Tendulkar and then you throw in Saurav Ganguly and, and then VVS Lakshman as well. And mm. I've, I probably missed out someone had opened the batting that uh, I think it might have been at the time um, Chopra was opening, but mm. um, and then it changed. Uh, sorry, it, it might have been, even been uh, Gambier. In fact, no, he didn't start until a bit later on, I think. So um, he was that next tour when uh, my little mate. You remember that? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> a few run-ins, but uh, yeah. you know, like anything, he was a great competitor, Gordon, and, and having worked with him since in IPL, yeah. um, he was a fantastic leader. So. Yeah. Uh, 
it's like anything. You, you come up against guys on the field and um, you're great competitors, but once you get to play with or work with them, you realise that um, you know they're, they're fantastic uh, to work with. Sometimes when you're on the field, there's times where you don't really want to know whether they're a good bloke or not because they drive out the wall on the field. <laughs> so I don't want to know that he's a good bloke off the field. Because, Jesus. <laughs> I'm sure there's a Well, we had that problem that about early me. on in our career as well, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, when that's we true. ran into each other playing for Tassie and WA. So little did we realise that uh, it was just that competitive nature and that's that's what happens on the field. And as long as you don't, yeah, take it too personally, I think everything's fine. Very much so. <laughs> Uh, as you mentioned before, Cato, uh, you were very cruelly, um, your international career was cut short due to some ridiculous politics and policies that had come into Australian cricket at that time. But you've now become a T20 coaching expert, having some great success with Trinbago Night Riders as well as the Calcutta Night Riders. And now you have an amazing opportunity as head coach of the Royal Challengers at um, Bangalore for this coming IPL season who is captained by the great Virat Kohli, which will be an amazing experience. So I really can't wait to be able to hear all these amazing insights into so many aspects of your career career and your life. So let's dig in a little bit deeper. Uh, I'm going to start with uh, the technical side of cricket. Your batting evolved a lot technically from your early days to what you ended up becoming. So was there one specific technical component with your batting that really stands out to you that you developed. So from that moment on, if you did did that and brought that every time, you knew you were a good chance of having a great day. Well, I think, you know, a lot was said about my technique over the years from the commentators and, and the public and stuff like that because of, I guess, my prelim movement before the ball was bowled and, and getting across the stumps. And that all, I guess, started from growing up in Perth and playing on a quick bouncer, bouncy whack a wicket in, in sort of the, the mid-90s. So, a lot of that was about trying to get in line with the ball and obviously um, make sure that, you know, I wasn't feeding the slips and gully region um, with that extra pace and bounce that you get at the whacker. And uh, in a way, it was also probably um, wanting the bowlers to come at the stumps, which was, you know, part of my strength as a player off my pads. So that's how that developed. And, and I think that was always a big part of my game. And when I ran into trouble with it was probably when, and particularly in the 2005 Ashes, uh, when I look back and analyse that, having seen the footage is that, you know, when the timing of that was out and it only had to be out by a fraction of a second, you end up finding that you you make the preliminary movement, but then you don't move again and you become very much caught on the crease or, or just playing with your hands. And when you get into that position as a batsman, as you know, it's a very dangerous game to be playing because then it just becomes about your hand eye rather than actually using, you know, your whole body to get yourself in good position. So, that was probably a big part of my game. And when I got the timing of that all right, um, everything seemed to flow from there. But I think when I did get that chance to open the batting with you, you know, from 2008 onwards, um, the thing that I think I had the best control of at any stage in my career was probably my hands. And I think that gets highlighted more when you're an opening batsman because when your hands are starting to get away from your body and, and you're playing against that new ball that potentially is moving early on, you start to expose yourself, obviously, to, to poking or prodding at the ball or, or creating opportunities for the bowler to get through your defence because you're obviously playing out in front of your, um, your pads and, and, that, and your body. So I think when I had full control of my hands and I became really aware of that uh, once I did get that opportunity to open the, the batting, that's when I felt that I was at my best because I, I knew that I was letting the ball come to me. I knew that my hand position was tucked in tight because I was very conscious of where they were going and how I was trying to strike the ball early on. And when that, 
I had full control of that. I felt like I was a, a completely different player compared to, you know, there's times where you might be a little bit apprehensive or anxious and you want to feel battle and ball early in innings and your hands start to get, you know, away from you. And, and in a way, you know, I look at uh, probably Steve Smith in the last few years and the way he's been able to, you know, dominate test cricket. And I think one thing that stands out for me now watching him as a commentator is his control of his hands and the fact that he plays the ball under his eye line so much. And we've seen so many, you know, so much great footage now on the coverage to see that, you know, more often than not, and it's probably 90% of the time, he's hitting the ball straight under his eye line because he's got such good control of his hands. And and that was probably something that I realised later in my career that it was a big part of my game. So when you're talking about hands, you're you're talking about your contact point more than anything, like yeah. being right under your eyes and staying within your body line. Is that what you mean? Is that what you mean? Yeah. So in yeah. terms of almost trying to look, even with your setup, like I'm trying to keep my hands in close to my sort of stomach region. Mm. And sometimes the gauge for me was the Velcro on your gloves would almost get caught on, on your jumper if you're batting in a jumper. Mm. Um, and so you sort of had that feeling that you knew you were keeping them in nice and tight. And, and particularly when you're trying to just play the line of the ball as an opening batsman, because you know, there's going to be some sort of movement with a hard new ball, um, whether it's swing or seam. So it's, and for me, a lot of my strength early on was to try and, be able to, to defend the ball straight rather than defend the ball square. Because as you know, as soon as you start defending the ball square, you start to bring in the slips and gully with any extra pace and bounce and movement. So it was just about trying to control that. And then if there's any movement, you sort of keep holding that line and uh, you need a bit of luck. You hope that sometimes those ones you're going to miss by just enough or you, you're obviously getting yourself in line to get the full face of the bat on the ball and, and be able to score runs and put pressure back on the bowlers. What you're saying there is absolutely critical. Is that is that um, keeping playing the ball under your eyes, that contact point under your eyes? And as you said with Steve Smith, that's one of the things that he does incredibly well. Yes, his mm. technique is is a little bit different to other people, but the one thing that he does incredibly well is hitting the ball right under his eyes, his contact point, because that's where you've got the most control. And also also the most power as well, because that's when you're using your whole body to be able to hit the ball, not just using your hands. Yeah, that's it's such a good point because you realise that when you do play the ball so much later as a batsman, you actually don't have to try and hit it as hard. So, And that probably then played into one of my other strengths was trying to just time the ball rather than overhit it. And particularly early on, look, you're happy to, to sort of get the ball through gaps for twos and threes and stuff like that because you know that that starts to build confidence in your game that you're getting in good positions and you're, you're middling the ball rather than obviously squirting it and, and missing the ball and potentially nicking it. So uh, that for me was something that always stood out. Yeah, and I, I definitely and I want to go back to as well as your prelim movement because that is absolutely critical because – everyone really goes through trying to find the prelim movement that's going to work for them. And for me, it, it evolved as well from, you know, standing still to back and across to then a forward press. But the one thing that you said there is the timing of your prelim movement, and that is absolutely critical. So for you, was that something that you worked on, like even in the nets, to be able to make sure that that repetition and that movement pattern was the timing of it was as perfect as it possibly could? Yeah, it was definitely something I worked on at a young age because I never did it in junior cricket. And mm. then when I got coached from sort of 17 years on when I was at my club in Perth, you know, I was very fortunate to get some great guidance and mentoring from um, one of our coaches there, Kevin Gartrell, who'd coached a number of top-level players in Tom Moody and Alex Stewart, who ended up playing for England. And um, th- that was a big part of, of that preparation for first-class cricket when he pulled me aside was – we wanted to work on 
not only a front foot game but a back foot game and, and then the prelim movement became part of that. So I guess the important thing about the prelim movement was that I know everyone gets taught to probably stay still and to have a, a still head, obviously, when the at the point of release when the bowl is bowling. Uh, but I always thought that at some point when you're facing someone quick and you've only got potentially half a second, you've got to move at some point. So for me, I just felt that it was comfortable to move earlier rather than later uh, and not feel rushed. And then the other part of it was to try and be as neutral as possible so that there was no um, weight transference doing it it was it was neutral you weren't putting all your body weight through your back leg or your front leg and as a as a consequence then you could either press back or press forward depending on the length of the ball so early in my career I was very very neutral but then by the back end of my career I was probably more um, the weight was probably more back and the reason for that is like anything you as your reflexes start to slow in your 30s um, and that's when I was playing I guess my best cricket was you know, from in test cricket, I was sort of 33 on. So I, I certainly was probably past my best, but I was still able to make runs because of all the knowledge and experience I had. But technically, I was, I was a different player. So I was probably a little bit more on my left foot um, back and across. But I just I knew how to counter that in terms of when I did drive the ball, still being able to transfer my weight through my front foot. Yeah, and what you said there is, is critical, um, is around your prelim movement, making sure you're better off being earlier than too late because if you're too late then everything's rushed your movements are rushed your head's moving as the ball's potentially bold so you don't have that really crystal clear perspective on the ball um so and then your hands get fast and everything trying to catch up because you've yet that's and it's only a split second it can be just a split second that you're slightly out your timing you're a little bit late and then everything goes <laughs> it feels like everything goes out the window and you become all of a sudden you feel like you're facing someone who's bowling 170 k's when they might be bowling 130 k's <laughs> yeah, it's exactly right. It feels like you've been done for pace off the wicket and you know mm-hmm. that the bowler hasn't increased their pace. It's just that you've probably got your timing wrong uh, and you're spot on. I think that the key point of it all too is that your head is still at the point of, of release when the bowler lets the ball go. And, and when's that, when that's the case, obviously your eyes are going to be still and you, your judgment's so much better. But when you're on the move and your head's wobbling around, then you, your eyes get, you know, get confused about the line of the ball or the length of the ball and, um, and then uh, unfortunately when you're playing with your hands, it's, you know, you're really relying on your hand eye and, and that makes it a very difficult game. Great insights, Cato. And because obviously you knew your game so well, it's great for everyone to be able to hear that because how important those two things are. The, 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 if you've got a pre, prelim movement is making sure you do it early. So you're still and your head's still at the um, contact point oh, as a ball's, as a ball's bowl, but then also hitting the ball under your eyes. So it's brilliant, brilliant points, mate. You were always very fit during your playing days as you still are now. So if you were starting your career over again, from a fitness perspective, would you have done anything differently? Well, it's amazing to think how much the game's changed in the last, you know, 20 odd years. And I go back to when I first started in a WA squad in the early nineties as an 18 year old, I think it was 1993. And I mean, we used to run the bridges, which was 10 K's for training. And then there was probably no real relevance to cricket in the fact that, um, you know, you never really did that on the field except for obviously staying out in the field for, for maybe a day or so when you were fielding. But, you know, if anything, it probably brought mental toughness of being able to push through and do that that level of running um, and the benefits involved. But in terms of specifics for cricket, I think, you know, it was around the sort of 2007 mark where I really felt that, um, you know, things changed for me because I was starting to get, you know, into that back end of my career. I was 32 and physically, you know, you do start to slow down a bit. And 
um, I tra- started to train differently just purely because of the the mindset of our trainer at the time, Stuart Carpenter, who you know well, and mm. Carps did a lot of work with us at New South Wales. And we started doing a lot more cricket-specific movements in the gym. And I'd always done the gym work and all that stuff and, and loved training and being as fit as I possibly could because I think it gives you a big advantage in cricket, um, particularly when you're playing the longer format of the game and also the shorter format with all the, the demands of running between the wickets and just all the little parts of the game that, you know, you need to be as fit and strong as possible. So, you know, the stuff that we did with carps in the gym in particular, it was a lot of it was batting specific. So you're doing, you know, playing cut shots and pull shots and, and sweeps and things like that with a, a plate. Um, and you're actually building up your strength as well as practicing, you know, your technique in the gym. And I found, you know, I got really strong and, and really ready for that season and I don't think it was a surprise. They ended up having a, a magnificent season that year in 07, 08. And a lot of it came down to, you know, the work you do off the field to be ready physically. Because as you know, with batting, to be able to get the big scores, you've got to be ruthless in making sure that you convert those starts into big hundreds. Because, you know, when you bat at the top of the order, as you know, you've got to make the most of it because there's plenty of days where you get can get knocked over early. So um, that training, I think, changed a lot. And even now I see it in the guys that... You know, a coach, I, I look at the guys now that embrace the training methods and the, I guess the science behind it all from the study that the trainers have done or the fitness staff. And I think it's magnificent that these young guys get this opportunity to be taught some really good lessons in how they should train um, to help them have, you know, strength in their body to get through the demands of being a cricketer these days. And I think I compare it back to the mid-90s and our trainers were magnificent people and it was just how we trained at the time and I certainly don't have any um you know hold any grudges over that because it was just what it was uh, like at the time with technology and, and how we trained but I think it's evolved a huge amount over these last 20 odd years and the players now will benefit from that um increased knowledge and technology the one thing we just need to make sure and and in t20 cricket in the franchise cricket it, there's not heaps of training time because you know there's always games on so it's more so it is doing a bit of training but it's it's recovery as well is is incredibly important um but when it comes to like in the pathways and the the fitness um obsession that's going on which is it's super important as you said because you need to push the limits of everything you've got technically you've got to push the limits to be the best you can and physically as well because you want to be the best version of yourself that you possibly can um do you think we're getting um the in australia alone do you think we're getting the balance right between the fitness development side of things and also the skill development side of things it's hard one to answer, you know, specifically because I don't know what goes into all the programs at state level and even in the, the pathways programs. I'm assuming that they find the balance between the skill development and the fitness development. But I think a big part of the skill development too, I guess, in our era was that, you know, a lot of the guys went and played in the off season. So we had a lot of guys, a lot of batsmen in Australian domestic cricket going and playing county cricket. And that was prior to T20 because obviously since sort of 2008 with the IPL, that's changed a lot for our young players and, and it hasn't been the case as much. We've seen a little bit of it of late and, and last year was a great example with Marnus Labuschagne going and playing county cricket, then coming into the Ashes and doing really well. So it was no surprise to see that. So I, I personally think the skill development is more important, particularly in the, the younger phase, because ultimately when you want to go up the levels, if you don't have that, that foundation to go back to with your skills, 
guys get found out and and then once they start questioning their belief, it's very hard for them to then get back to that level. Whereas if you've got the foundations at a young age, you can always work on the fitness component and get better at that. So I, I think the two can work hand in hand and complement each other, but I, I still think for the younger players in particular, um, when they're just coming out of, say, school or, or starting grade cricket at that sort of 17, 18-year-old age where they're still really learning their game and, and developing, it's really important that that's the time that they put into their skills, whether it's batting or bowling, to get that, that technique right because that's what's going to hold them in good stead over a long part of their career. It's beautifully said. Because <laughs> cricket is a skill-based game. If your skills yeah. aren't where you need them to be, then you won't be having, you won't be playing for that much, <laughs> staying in the team for that much longer. Yeah. Well, it's so hard to, to believe if you don't believe in your own skills. And we all know that the crucial element to success in cricket is having self-belief from a mental perspective. So, so if you don't have the foundation in your game, it, it's, you're always going to have that doubt in your mind, is my game good enough to go to the next level? And that's the battle that we all have as young players when you're trying to prove yourself at the next level is, is my game good enough? And you only know when you get there. And if you can prove it to yourself, then you're, you're on the, the right track. Kata, you had a, a shocking bout of chicken pox and also you had glandular fever as well um, at the early stage of, of your career um, that really did you know, take the wind out of your sails. Um, so with this, did you like have to change the way you manage your body? Um, and did these setbacks affect the way that um, you trained and, and lived your life? Yeah, I was going to talk about that uh, in the fact that it probably was a really harsh lesson to learn early in my career, and but you always learn from these things, and it, it certainly um, helped me become better and having a better knowledge of my body after going through it all. So it happened in 1999, and it was just before I I went on my first tour for Australia and to Sri Lanka in 99, and I think it was in about April at the end of the Shield season. We'd had a great season for WA. And I probably got a bit carried away with the celebrations after winning the Shield. And it was a big couple of weeks. And, and whether that contributed to it, it probably did. I'm not 100% sure because you, you never know with glandular fever. But I ended up getting it in April and it just absolutely floored me. Uh, you know, I was sleeping sort of 16 hours a day. I had the sore throat where you, you got, you know, pus and, and stuff on your throat and you, you can't eat. You, you, you struggle to even get water down. So for a period of probably about two weeks, I felt like death warmed up and then eventually it started to settle. Um, you know, I went to see a naturopath to try and see because all the doctors um, said, look, you've got glandular fever, but there's not much we can do. You just have to ride it out sort of thing. So I went to see a naturopath and uh, rested and, and did all that. And then eventually, you know, I started to feel a bit better, but I probably hadn't fully recovered from it. Uh, went on that tour to Sri Lanka and then got chickenpox in August that same year. So I had two big viruses within the space of, you know, four months of each other and then it was on the back of the chicken pox where I got really run down and, and then sort of struggled through the start of the 99 season end up having a sort of month off to try and get my strength back and uh, just feel like fit and strong again and then eventually I started to sort of work my way out of it and, and sort of felt got myself back to to sort of full fitness in that next season when I went and played county cricket in England but I certainly learned a lot that, you know, how important your body is as a professional athlete through that phase. You know, I, I tried things with my diet to see if that had an impact. Um, I didn't feel like drinking alcohol. And I was never a huge drinker apart from obviously celebrating at the end of seasons when you win shields. It's not often that happens. So I, 
I did go hard in, in the younger days. But in terms of learning from all that, you know, I realized the impact of alcohol and, and food and, and sleep and all that, having gone through these two viruses and, and that had a big impact on how I was through the rest of my career. And I know that sleep played a huge part in my routine um, and then even not drinking before games and waiting till after games to, to enjoy that with the, the group uh, because I knew the impact it had on my body and I'd get tired and run down quite easily um, if, if I wasn't, you know, keeping my body in balance. Yeah, it's a, it's a big lesson to learn early on in your career, um, but I suppose you, hit, it, you saw the, you know, the, the really downside of, of not managing your, bo- your body well. Um, so obviously we're able to get on top of it from an injury perspective. Did you have to, were you always pretty diligent on looking after your body, um, to be able to stay on the, on the park as well? Yeah, look, I was lucky. I only had one sort of little slip up early on when I was at the cricket Academy uh, in terms of injury, I, I hurt my shoulder and it was just from a, you know, a mistimed shot, uh, on a tour to South Africa. And I, I sort of had a bit of a, a tear in my shoulder and, and then it ended up having an arthroscope and it sort of cost me a couple of. Uh, months of that season but ultimately you know with injuries as you know they they can actually make you a lot hungrier because you realize you miss playing the game you miss being in the contest and and so you treat them then as sometimes when they happen you realize that there can be some benefit from them so um, I was fortunate I didn't have too many Um, at the back end had the partial tear of my Achilles and that was pretty much the end of my test career but um, you know in terms of doing everything right and getting the treatment I was always you know I did that as as well as I possibly could and and as diligently as possible. And we were blessed with, you know, some of the best in the business when it came to the physios, you know, whether it was Paddy Farhart at New South Wales or or Errol Orcott at at Australian level or, um, you know, all those guys that we were blessed to to be working with. So from that point of view, um, that always made it a lot easier because we were getting great advice. Yeah, it's it's incredibly important to make sure you get, well, if you're fortunate enough to be able to have great advice like um, those guys that you mentioned as well. Um, and then also what you said about being hungry. There's one thing that injuries do, as I know all too, I knew all too well, is that if you have a little a little break because of an injury, it does revitalize you. It makes you more hungry because you're missing out. You're missing, you're giving someone else an opportunity. And that's a one thing, one thing out of a number of things that injuries do um, do provide the challenge is you start being on the sideline because you've got an injury and you're seeing someone who's taking your spot and potentially doing really well. And that's part of the mental challenges that you've got to deal with as well. So that makes you even more hungry to, to do everything you can to be able to try and stay, stay fit and healthy. Yeah, it certainly does. And it's, it's even the fact that it, it makes you appreciate how important your body is uh, and even your mindset around it, because, you know, that, that's always, you know, we always had a saying and our physio used to have a saying that, you know, misery breeds company. And, and that a lot of the time it happens around the physio room because the guys are feeling miserable because they're not out there doing what they love. And, and it's really important in that environment that, you know, the physio has played a huge role in being able to control a team from getting to that point where you get guys dragging the group down because of their own situation. And I think that's something that, you know, I learned as a, I guess, as a leader that you've got to be mindful when you're in that situation, you've got to make sure that you're still up and about for the group so that you don't bring the guys down to, to be feeling bad because you're, you're not, you know, where you want to be. Uh, you've had a lot of experiences as a coach now across a number of T20 franchises. So from a coaching perspective, was there one major situation that really stands out in your mind that you really learned from where you didn't get the desired effect that you're looking for? 
Yeah, I probably won't go into specifics with with who it That's was, um, but but it, it certainly <laughs> happened with a group um, recently in the fact that you know it gave some honest feedback uh, after a game, and it was a group discussion as we as we would have, um, and it certainly wasn't done in a negative manner, but a couple of the players did take it uh, personally and and in a negative fashion, and and that was probably the learning that you know you do have different cultures and you do have different personalities within a team that potentially um, won't hear the feedback as you intended it. And so, like, I've always been a big believer as a player that, you know, um, when I was playing, I wasn't sure how I would, um, whether I wanted to coach because the hard thing about it was always felt that as a player, at least you can control the outcome of a game, whereas as a coach, you sort of have to sit back and watch watch things unfold. And I I wasn't sure how I was going to cope with that. And But what I've learned is that I try to trust the players and, but there's times where you do have to, you know, step in and, and if they aren't sticking to, you know, a plan that everyone's discussed that you know works and you've had success with, then that's when your role as a coach is to step in and, and maybe question the thought process or or why players aren't playing the style that, that we discussed as a group. And so, yeah, that, that particular conversation didn't quite go as it was intended, but the beauty is you end up having follow-up conversations and realise that, um, you know, you make sure there's no damage done from it and, you know, from a relationship point of view and you can move forward and hopefully be better for it, both from a coaching point of view and both from the playing point of view. And I think once both the coach and the player or players see um, why it was intended or, or the main reason for it, um, then you, you like to think that um, it'll be, it can be worked out and, and nothing lingers from it moving forward. And it's one of those tough conversations that you have to have, you know, as a, coach or as a captain or whatever it is that the role you have um, to be able to try and get the best out of the group and at the end of the day a lot of the time the messaging is from from my point of view it's around you know how's the team going to be able to be successful and, and it's always comes back to the team rather than um, you know the individual and sometimes that's where an individual can take it to heart because they feel like um, potentially they're being singled out if, if it's, it's impacted on them throughout the game. Yeah, with that situation in particular, was it um, more so the forum that you felt that it didn't get the desired effect or was it more so just the the language or just the intent that was sort of in the in the message that was conveyed? Yeah, look, I think it was more from the, the, the forum rather than the actual, um, the way the message came across because uh, when, when the message was given, I prefaced it by saying that, you know, we all know that the players that we were um, discussing as a batting unit we know that I can all play because we picked them to be there from the auction. So there was no doubt that, that that we didn't think they could play. It was, it was more a case of the execution. So I think that's probably what, what got um, confused in a way. And and once that was sort of spelled out, it it was probably just the forum that it was done in. And like anything, um, like I'm mindful of the fact that I do coach in a lot of teams overseas now rather than in Australia. And as a result, I'm really mindful that the way we go about things is different to how, um, you know, teams in other parts of the world go about things. So um, that's something that's, you know, it's great to learn and great to, to witness firsthand. But it's like anything, it's it's understanding, you know, what's going to work and, and have an effect on a group for the, for the benefit of the team. Yeah, it's a great learning because, as you said there, it's not – it's not just that that situation. It's also understanding different cultures. Yeah, you know, when when you when you're doing it in a in your own sort of understanding environment, like being it being an Australian team or your domestic team, then you, know, you understand how people will take different things. But the same message in an Aussie dressing room compared to in a subcontinent dressing room, it can it would 
it most probably will be taken in a different way. Um, and that's incredibly important for people who are playing in different teams and different cultures as well and mixing with different cultures as well as coaching because you want to make sure that you are having the right impact for the the positive to be able to help people get the best out of themselves as a as a player in a team but also as a coach. Yeah, no, it's, it's spot on, mate. It's, and it's one of the big challenges of coaching in some of the franchises around the world is that, um, you know, everyone plays their cricket in a different style and has a different mindset to it. And that's, that's been the, the great thing, you know, being in these roles is it gives you, it opens your eyes to a different way of doing things. And, and it just goes to show there's no right or wrong way in cricket because what works for someone might not work for another and, and vice versa. Um, and that's the beauty of, of being involved in all these different comps. The discipline and mental toughness that you developed in your game was super impressive to watch. So from a mental skills perspective, were you always built a certain way or did you develop certain mental skills that you used to give yourself the best chance of being at your best? Yeah, it's a good question. I think I certainly, um, my greatest strength as a player I felt was that I loved the contest. So I was always a competitor and I think that was probably within. So I don't think that was something that I developed over time. It was just naturally there. But then the other sides of it, I definitely developed. And then we obviously did a lot of work over the years with different sports psychologists. But I think ultimately a lot of it came down to, you know, the trial and error you do as a player um, from your experiences playing the game. And, and I learned over a long period of time from batting out in the middle all the little intricacies that I needed to do to be successful. And I think, you know, I guess the things that probably stood out, and I mentioned them a little bit before, was probably the self-awareness of my technique. And and the better I got at that, I think that gave me more of an advantage because I knew if things weren't quite going to plan out in the middle, and, and as you know, that, that can vary from day to day depending on the wicket, depending on how the bowl is bowl, depending on the overhead conditions. So, one day you might feel brilliant, the next day you can be completely opposite. So having that self-awareness of why things were happening and, and why the ball might go to a certain spot rather than where it was intended, that became really um, important for me. So whether it was you know, my hands, whether it was my front foot transferring my weight or, or um, even head position, all those little things played a part. So that, that was probably something that stood out. I think, as I mentioned, the pre-ball routine, not just with the prelim prelim movement but also just being um, focused and staying in the present so for mine and a lot of batsmen do it you know obviously you say to yourself watch the ball watch the ball and all that and that's pretty common but for mine in between balls was a big time for me to, to obviously switch off and then reset like everyone does and I, I religiously counted balls or I asked the umpire how many balls were left and that to me was my sign that I was switched on and in the present because I was you know if I'd lost count, then I knew that I'd maybe drifted away a little bit. Um, and then also probably the big thing that I, I became more aware of in time was just trying to visualise having success. So, you know, when you're younger, you sort of go out there hoping to, to make runs. And then over time, once you know your game really well, you start to visualise. And for me, a big part of it was I'd walk out the bat, you know, early in the day and the light was obviously so different to what it is later in the day. And, and I'd sort of visualise looking up at the scoreboard and seeing having 60 or 70 or 80 runs next to my name and knowing that the light would be different later in the day when I was on those runs and, and try and visualise that, knowing I'd been there before. And then when you sort of have been through it before, you know what you have to do to get there. And so in a way, it was probably like um, mapping out a path to try and get to your end destination in a way in your own mind. So 
that's something that I, I started to probably do and became a bit more aware of throughout my career. Um, and it didn't always happen, uh, as you know, like you can have that plan and it doesn't always plan, pan out. But it was almost in a way I was doing it to try and um, convince my mind that I was going to have a successful day. And, and when that started, when I started to be able to master that, it, it felt like I got a lot more consistency in my batting. And um, yeah, hopefully the results were showed that. Okay, there's a number of points that are fascinating there. <laughs> um, <laughs> the the first one is around competitive competitiveness. Like, obviously, there's no question. That's one thing that I. Then the first time we played against each other was us butting up against each other. Um, did you have to, was that just natural every time you went to bat or did you have to try and fabricate it at times because you knew that was when you're at your relentless best as well? Yeah, there's times you definitely fabricate it. Um, for instance, I reckon I used to do it a fair bit against the Victorians because I knew I was going to cop it in return. So I'd just <laughs> go out there and start it anyway. But I think in terms of, like there's days in your career and you know when you play county cricket, there's days when you wake up and you feel tired and, and you're not sure how you're gonna how you're gonna manage because you're just physically exhausted and mentally exhausted because of playing six days a week for you know months on end. So there were days where you'd, you'd probably go looking for something to try and get yourself going. But on the whole, I think more often than not, when I was feeling fresh and energized, it would happen naturally. So um, it'd be I'd be up for it because I was full of energy and ready to go. But on the days where I'd maybe question myself, think, geez, I feel a bit flat today. And you know, as a player, you just, you just don't have that same sort of buzz or zip about you purely because, you, you know, it's an exhausting game at times. You, know, you get to day four, day five of a test match and you, you can get really exhausted both physically and mentally. So they were the times where maybe you had to try and fabricate something and, and yeah, try and get yourself going in a, in a manner that you knew you're putting pressure on yourself because you'd said something to the bowler or, or you were, you're doing something to, you know, get up the opposition. So um, that happened from time to time, but generally I, I would have thought I was pretty quiet on the field apart from when we had a few run-ins uh-huh. <laughs> early days. Or if, or if someone, or someone pushed a bit too hard, <laughs> which I loved. The Croatian came out. Correct. um, (laughs) Okay. The second point was around that in-between ball routine. So that one of staying present to be able to make sure that you weren't thinking about what had happened before or what might happen in the future. Did you naturally develop that or did someone help you work through that process of staying present by counting the balls? I think I naturally developed it because I can't recall ever really talking about it with anyone in particular. Um, whether it's a sports psych or it was just something I think, you know, I think I learned early on in my career when I first started playing for WA that, you know, we had sports psychs and all that. But I realised that when you walked over the line, there was no one, you had your teammates with you in terms of your partner, batting partner, but you're on your own. And I, I realised early that I thought the more self-sufficient I can become, the better I'm going to be because, you can you have all this help off the field, but ultimately how you feel on the field and how you can control those emotions impacts on how you play. And, and I realised that in my first couple of seasons for WA, both good performances and bad performances, that you know, it didn't matter what anyone else said leading into a game, it came down to, to me personally. So um, that's something that I reckon I, I really developed myself and thinking about things and jotting down notes and you know trial and error in a way and, and then over the time, I realized, you know, with the experience, what works and what doesn't. And, and then I stuck to it religiously because I knew once I had it down pat that I could bat for big lengths of time or long periods of time, um, 
given that if you've got your game in order, then it's just a matter of applying yourself ball after ball and being ruthless with your mindset and playing, sticking to your game plan as to how you're going to score your runs because, um, as you know, building an innings and crafting an innings, there's different gears, different tempos you, you use throughout the day depending on the conditions, depending on the bowlers and the tactics. Um, and once you understand all those with experience, you sort of know how to play accordingly throughout the day uh, as, a, as a top order batsman. Yeah, because one of the critical components to batting is that mental energy and, and managing your mental energy. And by staying present, it means that you're not churning through extra mental energy. And I wish I, wish I knew that really. And um, when I was playing test cricket especially was my ability to – or lack of my ability to conserve mental energy was certainly not my strength at all. I used to churn through it because I just wanted to do well so much. Um, mm. And I just burned through. I just I was on even at the non-strikers end, for example, in between balls instead of – and that's one thing I wish I talked more to people like like you because you, you really understood what worked and how to be able to conserve that mental energy so you could bat for long periods of time. But then it's also putting together all of these components as well like what you said there around just understanding your game as well and staying really in the process of the mental side of things. So working through and understanding what that mental process is in between balls um, to conserve energy, also that competitiveness because that was when you're at your best, but then also pulling that into your technique as well because it is really important to understand like just about ball by ball exactly what's going on and how to be able to if I have to make an adjustment to make an adjustment before I'm out and I'm, I've made a mistake and I'm, and I'm back in the pavilion. So that technical process as well is in, was obviously is, is crucial as well. Like you, like you used. Yeah. You spot on there, particularly with that, um, the analogy you used then about making the mistake. And, and that was something that I, I realized is that you want to be able to change things out in the middle and be self-sufficient to make those minor adjustments because you're not going to play a perfect innings. We all know the ball moves a little bit or seems a little bit, unexpectedly off an uneven wicket or footmarks or something like that, you're not always going to get it 100% right. So it's about being aware of that and realising, well, if it doesn't quite go to plan, what was it that I did wrong that I can rectify for the next ball? And when you're aware of what it was that you made the error in, uh, when it comes to timing or playing at a ball that you shouldn't because of the line of it or whatever it is, that's when I think you start to really master batting because you, you start to understand what you have to do next so you don't pay the price and you're sitting there watching for the rest of the day. You can actually make these changes on the run and still get the result out in the middle because of them. Yeah, and that's the ultimate thing that, that everyone's chasing is that deep understanding technically of your technical components um, and breaking those down as the bowl is running in, um, you know, as the ball's bowled and then your, your movement patterns. But then also the, the mental process as well that is, is you know, the best version of yourself. Um, and what you said there um, previously around visualization, again, was that something that you, someone helped you with um, to be able to, um, to learn and develop? Or is that just something that, again, you, you knew you did it one day and you knew that it worked? Yeah, I think it came from probably, you know, over time with, with batting, a lot of the times you plan for games by watching the footage of the opposition, or particularly at test level because you've got access to it. Obviously, when you start out and you're just playing club cricket, you don't have all that stuff. So a lot of it came down to, you know, picturing how guys had bowled you in the past or if you're facing them for the first time, you had to obviously, you know, do it on the run in the, in the middle. So that was always a challenge when you're coming up against someone new. But 
as you bank all that experience, I found that, you know, I had a lot in the memory bank of, of knowing, okay, this is what he tried to do to me last time in these conditions. And, and then a lot of that came into my preparation for test cricket in that period from sort of 2008 to 2010, knowing how teams would try and go about, you know, uh, trying to get me out or try and stop me scoring runs. And so that's when I started to probably think more along the lines of, of what I was doing with the visualization. And, I think it just came from yeah, like like anything. It was it evolved over time. I don't think I set out to try and think about doing that. It just sort of happened, and I started to to realise that maybe this is having you know an impact on on being able to get to that place I want to get to because I'm thinking positively about of getting there. And rather than you know, the, one of the biggest challenges as a batsman is you can talk yourself out of doing something because. It is such a difficult game at times, particularly when you know the conditions are in the bowler's favour. Um, and that can happen either first day of a test or back end of a test when the conditions change. But I, I found that, yeah, when that positive mindset, um, you've got control of that and you can really uh, make a difference with your thinking, it impacts on your performance and the consistency of your performance. And I think that visualisation had a big part to play in, in the consistency for me because I started to to get myself in that place more often than not when I walked out to bat and tried to, yeah, tried to get there early on and, and planned for that being the case later in the day. This, this mental skill stuff, especially more than anything um, from the time when I was playing with, you know, so many of the great players, I wish that I really dug deeper and asked these types of questions when I was playing because it wasn't until after I finished in 2015 where I went um, because of, you know, where my performance was at, especially mentally, I went to get educated by, you know, a guru from the US that I really started to deeply understand the mental skills and the, and the right mental skills, but also the mental skills that um, you could sabotage your own performance as well. I wish I asked all these questions. So in my early twenties, I had a deeper understanding of what I was trying to chase instead of just yeah. trying to chase something that, circumstances might just allow those things to happen so that's the one thing that you know like what you're mentioning now i didn't know i didn't know a lot of, i didn't know these things and we, you know we opened the batting together in test matches you know and had a great very successful partnership and i wish i asked those questions because it would definitely would have helped me in a big way for my consistency my longevity being able to make the most of my good days as well which you know one was one of my things in test cricket that was one of my huge downfalls and my huge weaknesses yeah, it's interesting you say that because I, I think I was certainly guilty of that as well. I think when you're playing, because there's so much going on in terms of trying to get all this, you know, whether it's fitness, whether it's your mindset, whether it's your technique, and, and for you also as an all-rounder, there's so much that you have to do to get your game in order. And you actually, I think when you're playing, you don't want to complicate it because you know that it's a complex game, but you also know that you need to be keep it really simple because it, it happens in half a second, particularly when you're batting. And I, I was exactly the same. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't go searching for that all these mental skills in a way because I was just trying to keep it as simple, watch the ball and react. And I know that I did that for a lot of my career, but I think now I've probably thought more about it and probably didn't realise that I was doing a lot of this stuff until I've now gone into coaching and, and probably tried to get a deeper understanding of, of how guys can try and improve or what it is that players can do to improve. And then I realised that some, some of this stuff I probably did naturally and some of it I've, I've had to work on. But you're right, when you're playing, you probably don't ask all these questions because there's so much going on anyway that you don't want to make it any, any more complicated than it already is. But the, the learning is, is that some of this stuff, 
you know, can uncomplicate it in a way because it, it just gives you a better understanding of what you're doing when you're out there under pressure. And, and as we know, it's a mind game and very much a mental skills game. And, and, and when you start to master, I think it certainly helps uh, perform, you know, consistently better than, than when you don't use it. Or don't understand it, I should say. Yeah, exactly. And you've, you've beautifully articulated exactly, um, you know, all these different mental skills that you broke down and you knew you just implemented all the time. And that's, you know, there's no, no secrets to the reason why you had so much success. Um, from a coaching side of things, you mentioned um, as well from a mental skills philosophy point of view, do you instill certain mental skills um, with the, in the teams that you work um, that you work with to be able to get the best out of the, the group and also the individuals? Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, my philosophy with it is that, and it probably stems from what I mentioned before about, you know, that, that philosophy about playing, you know, the, the players at the end of the day are the ones that win games of cricket. So as a coach, I like to try and allow or trust them in a way is the word to, to make their own decisions because that's where you learn things. Uh, whereas if you're constantly told something all the time, you're probably you know, not going to learn as much as if you make that decision yourself. So look, I've tried to do that as much as I can. Um, and I think the thing for me is that you know, when I was playing, I didn't actually like to be forced to do something. So as a coach now, I've probably tried to have that same sort of mindset as well that I'll leave it up to the players. So you know, at the moment, there's, we've, we've got a sports psych and we've certainly encouraged that with the playing group. Um, particularly with the younger players because they're still learning about their games and the pressures involved. But I think ultimately I've left that decision to the players because I, I don't want to force players to do something they're not comfortable with and particularly in this space because it's not something that everyone can relate to or understand straight away. So I think in time players understand that they need to work on it and they get that through experience because they'll have good and bad experiences and they're searching for consistency and and you need to do something consistently then you probably have to have a process to it. So I think that's where the mental skills can help with that. But um, ultimately, players have to probably find that that for themselves. And the ones that go searching for it, you know, I certainly encourage that. But the other ones that, that don't, I don't judge them either because I think, you know, they've got their way about going about it and they've probably, their talent and their, they've already had success because when you get to these levels coaching, the players can play. It's just obviously a matter of, them then adjusting to you know game styles and playing a, a level up maybe from domestic cricket so um, they start to learn and, and you, you like to think that they not only learn from the coaches but also from their their fellow teammates when there's a lot of seniority around yeah, exactly and that's I suppose as a coach the the biggest challenge is well, I know as a as a player it's not until you really open your mind's open enough to to move into a space so if a mental skills coach came along maybe in my early 20s or a a sports psychologist you're not always really that open to it because you're like oh you know i'm going all right but the one thing that i I, like is as a coach is the balance between knowing how important these this education is for them to be able to get out of their own way and bring their best mental like best version of themselves every time but not being able to go like push it on them where they just get closed off and they go, no way, oh, this, I don't need this, I'm going fine. So I'm sure that's one of the ultimate challenges as a coach. It is. It's a balancing act because you sort of you want them to try and embrace it because you know that it hopefully will have some a positive effect on them. But at the same time, you know that it's not for everyone. And some players are very instinctive players and that's what makes them the players they are. So mm-hmm. I think I realised that having played with a variety of different players over the years, 
is that you realize not everyone's cut from the same cloth in terms of how they go about having success. So that's what I've tried to, I guess, implement as a coach is that um, allow those players the freedom to make their own decisions because ultimately it's their career. Um, you can help try and guide them, but ultimately, you know, they're the ones that are going to want to go in a certain direction. And you, you hope that, you know, some of the successful players that have used these skills um, will then pass that knowledge to some of the younger players because they will buy in a lot easier when you know when there's modelling there and they see senior players that have had success because they, they really believe in, in some of these skills. Because it is, as you know, the game's not just about technique. It's also about your mental skills and it's also about your physical uh, fitness and, and ability there as well. So it's a combination of all those factors that, that go into making, you know, the great players successful. Yeah, and I'll go back to, again, when I was, when I was in my early 20s, I wish – like I was so well, I was so incredibly lucky to be involved in a team that had so many great like some of the best players that ever played cricket throughout like throughout the world. But I never really dug into these specific questions. It was more so you just saw what they did and you just tried to replicate what they did, not really knowing exactly why they did it. Anyway, you live and learn. <laughs> no, no, it's exactly right. And I think we're all the same. Like, as I said before, I was exactly the same in that respect because it was there and you probably didn't quite understand how to use it all. And that's where I guess, you know, for me at the moment, it's about trying to create an environment where you have that learning and, and you're trying to pass things on because you then hope that you can fast track guys' development because that gives them a better chance of thinking, oh, hang on, this might work for me. And until they try it, they don't know. And that's probably part of what you realise when you've had a long career is that you you do use trial and error over a long period of time to get to an end destination. And, and when you finally get there, you realise, wow, that, that was, I wish I'd tried that earlier, as you mentioned. So I think the other thing with all of this is that trying to do it in a subtle way where, you know, you're not lecturing to guys. You do it in a discussion forum where, you know, people can talk and, and get their ideas out in the open without it feeling like they're just being lectured to. So, um, in a, in a way it's about how you deliver it as well. So, and that's, and then it's also about the personal relationship that the sports psych has with, um, you know, the players. And, and once that trust is built up, you know, the players will open up to, to thinking about things. Um, you've been involved in the media since you retired, commentating on the ABC for a, for a period of time. So from what you know now, would you have approached the media in a different way when you're playing? Yeah, I actually said this recently. I've really loved being involved because it's it's given me a, a far different perspective, um, you know, compared to when I was playing. And, and when I was younger, I didn't fully appreciate the role of the media. Um, you know, you cop criticism and, and that's probably what you think of the most as a player. You go, oh, someone said something bad about me and you take it personally. And I wish now that I'd actually done some work experience or actually think what would be good for some of our young players in Australia at the moment would be to do, you know, a week's work experience or a day's work experience, whatever it is with the media, to understand their roles better. And then it, I think it gives you a different perspective as a player. Um, and that's something that I learn over time. And then I realised that, you know, when I didn't pay attention to what was being written or said, um, I think it helped enormously because I didn't waste any, you know, negative energy on that, what I didn't know. And I think not to say that what people are saying is wrong, but you've got to understand what you're doing to, to get things right. And if you get um, influenced by someone else's opinion and someone else's opinion might be completely correct because it might be constructive criticism that you're getting, but you just don't realize it as a player. So I think it all depends on who it's coming from and, and what's being said. But 
sometimes the criticism can actually end up helping you as a player if you're willing to open your ears and, and listen to it. And I know there were times that I know I didn't probably want to listen to it, but it was probably, you know, I should have taken it on board. So um, it's been a learning experience. And I think with, with age, you get better at understanding, you know, why they're doing the job they're doing and, and what they're trying to do. The only way that I really could deal with the, the, the media was to be able to shut it out. And as you, but in the way, in an, in the end, you look back and that probably was a really good way because you weren't burning any extra mental energy, especially the negative energy. If there was you know, some critical sort of articles written about you, but as you said, there are learnings as well. Like a lot of these, well, a number of these people who um, are in the media were past, past players as well. So their perspective on what's going on is a lot of the time is, is spot on. Um, but when it comes to, and this is not just the media scrutiny, but also the public scrutiny, was there, um, did it ever affect your performances on the field or the way you lived your life off the field? Oh, look, there's no doubt it did. I went through a period where, uh, particularly when I was in the one day team and I wasn't performing, um, well enough batting at the top of the order. And it was, it was, go- I was going through a period where I just wasn't, um, in a good place technically. And, and I was really conservative with the way I was playing and didn't back myself. And then as a result, it showed in the way I played. And, um, you know, that really affected me because I was trying my best, but I just wasn't being able to perform because I, I wasn't feeling confident in my game. And so, um, you know, I took that to heart because you sort of feel like the public are hammering you over your performance when you know you're trying your utmost to do well. But I realised in, in time that it wasn't, you know, it, I shouldn't have taken it personally. It's just that's what happens when you play at the highest level and, and I learned from that. And then, you know, conversely, when you've got public support, which I know I got in the back end of my career in the test team, it's amazing the confidence boost it gives you when you know the country's right behind you. So I looked at it from both perspectives and realised that that first one, you know, I probably should have dealt with it a bit differently, but it definitely impacted my performance because I got really um, you know, nervous and anxious about it. But then later on, it gave me a huge boost because I knew I had the support basically because I'd been performing and, and I, at the same time, I was at the top of my game. So that helped as well. And, and when you're playing well, you, you hope then that, you know, um, performances follow and the, the public get behind you. Yeah. And that's part of the, what you said there is part of the mental skills and understanding as well, because, um, you know, what you're talking about there is circumstantial confidence is if things aren't going, the outcome's not going to plan, then your confidence is low. But then when everything is going well and the you know, public and the media are behind you, then your circumstantial evidence, um, confidence is really high. But from a mental skills perspective, is it's it's blocking out – the ultimate is blocking out both of those and just knowing exactly what you need to do to be your best technically, mentally, f- physically as well to be able to just bring your best version of you all the time instead of um, – which is what happens. You, you do rely on those circumstances to – to bring the confidence or, you know, or then when it's not going well, it, sh- it can shut you down. It can really stifle, stifle you on the field and then also you know, off the field. Yeah, it's spot on. It's highlighting that the process is far more important than anything else because in both those experiences for me, it was all about how I was playing out in the middle and when it, was, you know, it wasn't going to plan, it was because I wasn't in that space from a process point of view doing everything right to help me have success and then that impacts on me mentally. Uh, and then conversely, the other one, when everything was going well, so you, you're spot on. It's, it is, it just goes to show that those, those base skills and the base thought processes that you need to have as a strong foundation of your game are so crucial to, to being able to make all the other stuff irrelevant. Okay. This is going to get into 
other aspects of life away from cricket. And and I believe this is one of the most important life skills that most of us don't get much education on throughout our lives. Uh, but managing and investing our money as well as we possibly can with with what we earn, whether whatever that is, whether it's a smaller amount, larger amount, it doesn't matter, but it's making the most of that money that you that you've earned. It is integral to making the most of what what we've got. So looking back from where you are right now, would you have done things differently from from an investment and wealth generation point of view? No, not at all. I've been uh, very fortunate because I I think where it all started for me was obviously, you know, you get a, an education from your parents in terms of how, you know, you live and, and I guess I grew up in a, you know, in an area, it was a working class suburb in, in Perth, you know, 30 minutes out and uh, mum and dad always worked hard for their money and we weren't blessed with a huge amount of money, but we always, you know, had everything we needed with, you know, school and clothes and all that sort of stuff, food on the table. So I think I got a really good grounding there, but then when I finished school, I um, did a commerce degree and that mm. obviously gave me a pretty good foundation for understanding investments and finance and tax and all that sort of stuff mm. just from a general point of view. And I think I was able to utilise that throughout my career with that basic uh, knowledge of that. Um, and then I've, I've been very blessed to have had you know a magnificent accountant who's given me some great or family some great financial advice throughout my career. And I think in a way um, that's then allowed me to be able to do what I do now and enjoy you know plenty of time with my young boys. And I do spend a bit of time away from home with a couple of coaching um, commitments with the tournaments I'm involved in, but. You know, when I'm home, I'm home helping out, you know, with their coaching, their sport and helping out at school with reading groups and things like that. And I think having that ability to do that at such a young age in their life is has only been brought about because of um, having such great advice from, from all those people over a number of years. Yeah, that foundation that you've got there, even from one, your grounding that you had from your family growing up, your mum and dad, but then a commerce degree to be able to have more of a foundation of, you know, the way the world works. So you can, you've got a better chance of navigating your way around the opportunists that are out there. Um, again, taking away from the mental skills, I wish I asked these questions of you when I was, um, when I was playing with you, because again, this is something that people don't talk about. It's more, the only thing people really talk about cricketers talk about is the house or the car or the clothes or, you know, the guitars or wine or whatever it is. It's actually not digging into the deep root of a really important life skill is what are the things that you're investing in? Who's your advisor? What are they recommending instead of just trying to live a higher lifestyle and blow the <laughs> blow you after after tax dollars. <laughs> well, it's, it's an interesting point because I guess from my point of view, I never really talked about that much because I guess, look, I had a long-term view in the fact that, you know, you want to have a family one day and you want to be able to provide for them just like your parents have provided for you and you want to give them an education and everything that you've had in your life. So a lot of my thoughts were around being able to provide for that. So it was always a long-term view, which I think has helped because that's the sort of advice I got from our account. But I think, you know, I look back to some of my fondest memories and they were, you know, when I was probably 17, 18 years of age playing club cricket or being at the cricket academy and I didn't have any money because we didn't get paid anything back then because it was semi-professional. And I think, well, it just goes to show that, you know, money's not the be-all and end-all because some of the greatest memories I had were was when I was 17 sitting in, the Midland Guildford dressing rooms, learning all about life from our our captain after a day's play when you're sitting there having a few stubbies. So, you know, those some of those great memories don't involve money. But then I think 
you still need it to obviously be able to do the things in life that you want your kids to be able to experience and stuff like that. So uh, for me, that's why I probably never really talked about it much because it wasn't the be-all and end-all because when I first came into the game, you know, those first, I think it was probably from 18 to 20 in the WA squad, you know, we trained 10 months a year, we didn't get paid a cent. But I'm glad I played in that era because I knew that, you know, I truly appreciated what I was doing because I was doing it for the love of the game. And then I was very fortunate that the game changed and the ACA came in in 97 and we started to get, get compensated accordingly for, for you know, what we were doing um, from the, the game's finances point of view. So, yes, I'm very blessed. But at the same time, um, I also look back on that start and I think that gave, gave me as a cricketer a really good grounding to know that I was doing playing this for the right reasons and, um, yeah, it wasn't always about money. Yeah, and what you said there about the, having the long-term view, which is – critically important to to investing and not you know and making the most of of what you what you have earned um and how important that long-term view is with the advice that you that you got um you know from from your account in and around the investments was it primarily um around um shares or managed funds or was it in commercial property or in residential property what were the things that really have have made have made the most of, of what you've earned? Well, I think, as I mentioned before, that the first thing came from, you know, mum and dad, obviously, um, in terms of where we lived and, and we certainly lived in a working class suburb. It wasn't, you know, a wealthy area by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, one thing, they never had debt and that was probably a big thing in, in that sort of that era, um, you know, only paying or, or buying what you could afford. And so that was probably one of the learnings. And then, I guess the big one for me was probably about 15 years ago, my accountant said, you probably want to set yourself up with an income stream for when your playing days are over um, with one with an investment and that was in commercial property. And I look back on that decision now and, it, and I think I'm so lucky because to have had that advice, not realising how important it was going to be, particularly when it came to making decisions around what I wanted to do when I finished playing, I felt like, I wasn't in a position that I was forced to do something because I needed to from a finance point of view. I was able to do it because I wanted to do it. And that's where, you know, I finished playing and within a couple of days of playing in, I think it was BBL final three, I started work at the Giants three days later. And I I certainly wasn't doing that job for money. It was an experience. And I was lucky to be able to do that because of the investments we'd made, um, you know, through my accountant's advice so many years earlier by having an income stream and meaning that it wasn't just solely about, you know, what sort of income I brought in from my job to be able to uh, provide for the family. So that in a way, you know, was, was something I didn't realise at the time, but now I look back on it and think I'm, you know, I'm blessed to have had that such great advice. And that's the ultimate thing that you, that everyone needs to be able to chase and find is the right person to give you the right advice for the right reasons. It's not, the and that's one of the challenges. There are a lot of opportunists out there in and around, um, you know, professional athletes in general as a starting point who are there who are trying to make the most of opportunities to be able to make money for themselves instead of finding the right person who is giving you the, the right advice, who's educated and really understands things deeply and gives you the right advice for the right reasons to with you allow you to be able to then have the income stream and the financial freedom so then you don't just have to jump into something for the because you need to support your family you know it's a good point because 
the biggest difference for sportsmen compared to someone else in the in the workforce is that you know when you're a, I guess you got the skills and you got the the uni degree you know people can do that job for 30 to 40 years or whatever it is that they want to work for but when it comes to sport you know the window you know at best is probably 20 years max um, and which is a big difference so there's a big part of your working life that you know is unaccounted for in terms of maybe what skills or what you're going to do so um, that's the hard part is that you've got to make up that that decision as to what you want to do after your playing career is over. And, you know, it is hard when you've put all all your effort and energy into one thing. Um, you don't always have the background to be able to go on and do something else. And that's why you do see, you know, a lot of us stay involved in the game because um, that's what we've known for the last, you know, 15, 20 years while you've been playing. And, um, you know, we're fortunate if we do get those opportunities, but then it's also important to have, you know, something else to be able to fall back on. One thing that I've realized is that life is all about how well you bounce back from setbacks that life always throws at you. So do you have a mantra or a saying in your life that helps you bounce back quicker from the challenges that life always throws your way? Yeah, I think I do. And I think it it stems from my first few years in the WA squad. And we had this big mural up in the the dressing room, the old Wacker Sheds. And it was the great photo of the um, the frog, which is halfway down the, the big stalk's throat, and he's hanging on with his his hands around the throat, just hanging on for dear life. And it said, "Never ever give up." Underneath, and that was probably our mantra as a team. And I think in the end, I probably picked it up myself um, in those early years, and I reckon I've run with it ever since. And that was probably. Um, something I always pride myself on the cricket field. No matter what the situation, I just still try to hang in there and um, not give up. And you, you win some, you lose some. But I think ultimately over the long run um, with that mantra, it's certainly um, you know, given me a lot of lot more positives. Um, and uh, for, for the thing that stands out was particularly, you know, in 2007 I got told um, that I was never going to get picked to play for Australia again. And then, you know, within probably 12 months, I was back playing test cricket in 2008. Um, And that to me, I don't think that would have happened without that mantra or having had that sort of, um, you know, that attitude. So uh, whilst it might not have been present in my mind at the time, it it probably was a big part of my persona and and how I played. So it probably did play a part in me being able to get back in the test team, even though they said it wasn't going to happen. The super interesting about life in general is you never you never know exactly how close you are when things aren't going well, how close you are for it to turn around. Yes, it could continue to go on and a downtime for a fair bit longer, but it also within a split second could shift so quickly as well. But if you've given up before, you've never had a chance to be able to see how quickly that could turn around. And that saying there is absolutely exactly what life is all about is not giving up because you don't know exactly what's around the corner. No, that's exactly right, mate. It's something now I try and pass on to my boys because like anything, you get frustrated in life when you're not quite getting the outcome you want when you're trying everything and and you know that if you give up, you've got no chance. So at least if you hang in there, you've got you might only have a small chance, but at least you've got some chance. And then when you experience that it does actually work and you can turn it around, then you, it gives you a huge boost because you learn that, you know what, it, you never know what's around the corner, as you rightly said, and that's the beauty of life is that it has a funny way of, of rewarding you at times when you least expect it and then you, you obviously grow enormously from that experience. And that for me is the super exciting thing about life is you never know what's around the corner. 
<laughs> so when you go and, and, and that's both ways. Well, when you're going really well, you got to make the most of the times that are going well, because it could in a split second, things can change so quickly. And again, there's the other side to it. If things aren't going exactly like that. Well, it's amazing how quickly things could turn around as well. And that's the exciting thing for me that, you know, it makes me jump out of bed, whether that's for cricket, whether that's for life outside of cricket, whether like business stuff or whether that's my family, my wife, my kids, it's that's excitement that life provides because you never know, you never know good and bad what's around the corner. No, that's exactly right, mate. And it, and it just goes to show how precious it is, particularly when, you know, we've all experienced, you know, a loved one that's been taken from us and, and that's what highlights, you know, why well, we just got to enjoy it day by day. Exactly. And, and right now we're in the middle of this, you know, pandemic which is crippling society um you know the economy and and people are, are you know dying because of this but this is also part of the mantra to not to not give up because you never know what's around the corner you think about the people who've been in lockdown whether that's in in india or in in melbourne at the moment um with people who are being totally locked down but it's amazing if you use it as a in a positive way to to develop other skills or reconnect with certain things that you haven't had because life's been so busy. There's, there's always a silver lining to every situation that's not great. And at the moment, there's no question this pandemic is, is not good. It's, it's not good for the, you know, the, throughout the whole world, even with the IPL being here in, in Dubai, it's a very different experience. Traveling is a very different experience, but part of that mantra not giving up especially in this day and age right now with this pandemic is and still seeing the silver lining to things is well i've been really busy because if life gets busy well it's it's been a time to pause and reconnect with something that i've been putting off for a long period of time even if it's especially your family yeah you're spot on i think that's probably been the blessing for a lot of people um, that have been leaving these, you know, really busy lifestyles for whatever reason it is with work and family and, and just everything that, that life throws at you. But, you know, the, the one thing I, I guess I learned from the lockdown was homeschooling was you have to learn the art of patience, teaching young kids. And, um, but also the fact that you get to spend all this time um, helping them learn, but also being able to chat to the neighbours and things like that because you can't go anywhere or you can't, um, you know, the kids don't have sport on and they don't have as many commitments that they do when, when everything was normal. So I, I agree. I think there was a lot of positives that came out of it. Yes, there's obviously a lot of negatives for a lot of people, the world, uh, worldwide, but I think we've been incredibly lucky in Australia with the situation being kept under, you know, pretty well under control. Obviously there's been a few little outbreaks in recent times with Melbourne and stuff, but Overall, compared to the rest of the world, we've been very blessed. So, um, you know, there's there's been a lot of positives as well, um, even though you know it has been a, a cruel time for a lot of people in the world. Okay, you've met and been around a lot of incredibly successful people. Is there one person in particular that really stands out to you the most, and and why? Yeah, look, it's a tough one because yeah, there's so many people that that help influence and shape you, and and obviously you know your family play a huge role um, given the the upbringing you have. Uh, but I think, I guess from a cricket point of view, I would say that there was probably two people that had a big impact and that was, one was Tom Moody, my first captain in WA. And, and the reason for that is he obviously, um, he showed me a level of professionalism just in his actions. You know, he played all year round, he played county cricket and he'd come back and play for WA. And whether we were playing for Midland together or whether we were playing you know, for WA, he always had that same level of professionalism no matter what level he played at. And I think... That was something I tried to 
exhibit throughout my days. I love playing club cricket because it, it you show respect for where you come from and it just goes to show that you, even if you do get to the highest level, you still respect that, that that level played a huge part in your development and that was something that I always held dear to me. And then I guess the other thing that I learned from him, given that there was such a big age gap, was just the way he lived his life. I learned a lot from how he, he conducted himself and how he was as a person and as a leader. So, now, he's always been a fantastic mentor for me. And then through that, I guess the man I mentioned before at my cricket club in Perth, Midland Guildford, um, a man by the name of Kevin Gartrell, who coached a lot of the guys there. And I think for me, it was it was just the passion he had for the game. And, you know, he, he's become a mentor to so many of us there, you know, whether it was Alex Stewart from England or Tom or myself or Brennan Julian or whoever it was that came through the club. You know, he did that just purely from the enjoyment of trying to help us get better. There was no other, you know, gain for him other than he loved helping and imparting his knowledge. And I think, you know, that's something that I, I think of coaching now is that hopefully if there's one thing I do as a coach as is I can impart that enthusiasm and energy and passion for the game onto the young guys that I get to, to work with. And not just the young guys, hopefully some of the older guys as well. Um, because, you know, when you've played for as long as, as we all did, um, and, and whether it's the stuff you learnt or the stuff you've learned off other players and other greats because it was a, such a great era, um, I feel like there's, there's so many little lessons that you can pass on to some of the young guys that hopefully will help them in their careers to enjoy um, what is a great great game of, of sport. Exactly, and that's um, the beauty of, I suppose, and the excitement and joy of life is being able to impart everything that you've learnt onto as many people as you possibly can. So they don't have to make the exact same mistakes that you potentially did. Um, and that's why, um, you know, this, this podcast alone and this, ep- um, you know, this episode is, is going to help so, uh, it's going to help so many people because that's part of, you know, living life is if you're fortunate enough to be able to gain knowledge personally or from, you know, some incredible people that you've been around, part of, you know, being a human being as well as then being able to pass it on to as many people as you possibly can as well. Yeah, no, it's it's exactly right. And I think you you probably don't truly appreciate that until you become a parent either. And I think that's something that's probably stood out to me in the last, you know, nine years or so um, is that when you start to have to teach your own uh, children, you know, what you want them to be like and what, what sort of manners they have and, and how they conduct themselves, uh, you realise that, you know, that is such a great part of life, as you say, is being able to impart that knowledge and wisdom to hopefully help them fast track their development to, to get to, you know, a place that they become a good person and, and then conversely help other people down the track. As you know, Kat, I, I do absolutely love learning and reading. So um, can you give me three of your best books that you've read that, um, that have had the most impact on you? Like you, mate, I wish I'd done more of this when I was playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you get caught up in in that world of just, you know, doing what you have to do and, and maybe not exploring other options. And now having a little bit more time in these roles where you're traveling and on a plane and stuff like that, um, I have actually started to, to read more and, and probably try and learn a bit more, particularly when it comes to coaching because I'm so still new at it and very young at it. So, and there's a lot to learn. So, the books that I've probably started to read, I do love autobiographies, but mm. the three that stand out to me recently, one is um, Legacy, which is the, the leadership book on the All Blacks. And I got um, sort of recommended that book when I was working at the Giants running the leadership program. And um, that's something that, you know, I read the book myself and, and thought, oh, geez, I wish I'd had been able to read this when I was playing because there were so many great learnings in there from what has been such a successful team in, in world sport. 
So that one stood out. Gilbert, and then, by Gilbert and Oka. He's correct. A, yeah. yeah. Wow. That is a phenomenal read. <laughs> so um, yep. that's been fantastic. And mm-hmm. then the other one, the other couple I'm reading at the moment, one I've just finished, um, I've always been a lifelong Richmond supporter and they won the flag in 2017. And then Conrad Marshall wrote a book on their 2019, last year's finals campaign, which I've just read. And, and the insights into that, particularly from a coaching perspective, um, I think will help me enormously. And, and, Having met a number of the players over the years, um, it's just and having been a lifelong supporter, to see what they've been able to achieve in these last three years is remarkable. Because the playing group probably hasn't changed a lot, but what it seems that's happened is their mindset has changed, and their connection with each other and their bond with each other has grown and taken been taken to another level. And it's no coincidence with the work that's gone on behind the scenes that they've been able to achieve what they have achieved. And hopefully, there's another one waiting in the next couple of years to, to go even more than the two. But that's been fantastic to read, particularly from a coaching perspective. And then recently, one of the, the beauties of COVID was having that extra time to maybe watch a few things on Netflix. And mm-hmm. I, I got engrossed in uh, the Michael Jordan documentary, yeah. The Last Dance. Yeah. And there were some fantastic learnings out of that. And out of that, I sort of had my birthday the other day and got um, given uh, Phil Jackson's book, Mind Games, which... Phil Jackson, the Bulls coach, had a mm. remarkable success in the NBA. So uh, I just started that and, and only a couple of chapters in, but already there's been oh, probably, I reckon I've written down about 25 different learnings <laughs> already in the first couple of chapters. So there, there's just some yeah really good stuff there in these books that you know I probably tend to lean towards reading about sporting books because I love sport and all different sports. And so whether it's footy or basketball or cricket or whatever it is, um, to me, these books or even Rugby Union, a lot of the, the same traits and, and learnings and philosophies can be transferred across sports. So, um, yeah, the books I've been reading have been, yeah, been really enjoyable. It's interesting you talk about Richmond Footy Club as well. Obviously, you're a, long, a lifelong um, supporter. Um, the same guy who educated me in 2015 from the mental skills perspective um, was one of the guys who, um, you know, worked with Richmond for a period of time during, I think it was like the, the second year, I think it was. So, um, you know, I understand. And, and that guy, um, Jacques Delaire, we've gone into mental skills business, um, together. So, um, I know it, I know it all too well part, you know, a part of, you know, what they instilled from a mental skills perspective as well to bring that connection and the staying present and all that sort of stuff, all the things that, um, you know, you talked about as well, um, you know, through, through this, um, episode so far. And the other one around Phil Jackson, one that you're right, last dance was just, gosh, the footage alone and just seeing how like crazily good Michael Jordan was above everyone else. Like all these, the people he's playing against are the best basketballs in the world. He's dominating. But then Phil Jackson to see how, like I've read Hoop Dreams, which was fascinating as well um, by Phil Jackson, but just the deep thinking that he went through. And it wasn't just obviously the, the um, tactical side of basketball. It was the connection that he had with every single player in his, that was on his roster. Gosh, he is just a, a phenomenon to be able to have do what he did with the Bulls and then go to LA and do what he the, the Lakers and do what he did there. It's just, oh, it's fascinating. So you can obviously learn so much from him. Yeah, and that's what already. It's just been fantastic to to sit and, and read part of that. But I think the thing that stands out in terms of watching that that doco was that you know yes, Michael Jordan was so good, but 
in the way that Phil Jackson managed him to be able to bring his other teammates into the game because of the, the game plan changed under him and, and the fact that I guess you know people probably judged him on winning those six titles with Jordan involved at the Bulls but then to be able to go and replicate that at another franchise it just goes to show that you know he obviously had all the, the right skills and right man management skills to get the best out of people uh, in that environment and yeah, his record is, is unbelievable. Kat, it has been very special to have had you on this episode of Lessons Learned with the Greats. It truly was an absolute pleasure to have played with you and walked out with you at the start of a test match to take on some of the best bowlers in the world. And now it has been fascinating to hear the lessons that you have learned throughout your career and in your life. I'm so grateful for you taking the time to share all these amazing insights with me and everyone who listens to this will be that much richer for digging deeper into the mind of one of the greats of world cricket. Thanks, Kat. Thanks, Wado. It's been my absolute pleasure, mate, and it was a pleasure opening with you. I certainly love playing with you. I think we shared that same competitive nature, and uh, you know I'm all for that, so it was always a pleasure doing that. And I've loved being involved, and I think the questions, you know, have certainly helped me be able to get um, stuff out that hopefully can help other people, and particularly young players in cricket. So uh, it's been a pleasure to share it all with you, mate. Yeah, it certainly will, Kat. Good on you, mate. Thank you so much. Pleasure. For more episodes of Lessons Learned with the Greats, head to t20stars.com forward slash podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.